Hi, and welcome to another episode of Gomology. This is episode 14, and today I am joined by Brian Shettig of Right Stuff. Um, would you like to introduce yourself, Brian? Yeah, hi. Uh, my name is Brian Shettig, and uh, I'm the owner, creator, founder, designer, all around everything of the Right Stuff. And you make? Uh, clothing, uh, men's repro heritage, pre-World War II style clothing, mostly in Japan. And those that have seen your your clothes know that you're an absolute nerd when it comes to the vintage workwear style. Yeah, yeah, especially uh, 1910s, 20s, and 30s. Uh, yeah, American sort of what you know, straightforward workwear style. Yeah, that's what interests interests me the most. Because those that follow your Instagram will have seen that you're it's a it's a mix of the stuff you have made and also of vintage uh, advertising and documentation of really what the styles are all about. Yeah. Photographs, some that I find, some that I collect, you know, actual photographs and uh, advertisements and clothing pieces and, you know, anything I can get my hands on basically. Catalogs. Where this, this interest came from. Can you say anything briefly about that? Uh, it came from an article I had to write in 2014 about the menswear dog blog. Um, the men's, that's the, that's the guy who takes photos of menswear with his dog's head on it. Yeah. Yeah. He, he dresses up his Sheba, uh, with like his clothing and then takes photos. And I had to write an article about, I was working at a magazine. I had to write an article about that. And then... I I liked a few of the clothing pieces that, you know, were featured on there. And, and so I looked them up. I looked up the brand name and I went to the websites and I thought, this is pretty interesting. And then his, I guess it was on Tumblr or something like that is where he was posting back, not Instagram. Uh, it, it was like a Tumblr thing or something like that. And um, part of his bio was never washing my selvage jeans. And I was, I just thought, what? what the heck does that, what's selvage, you know, what's selvage denim? So I Googled it and I saw it and I thought this, you know, I, I like this. I like this look and I like the idea. And uh, I just looked up where, where I could go buy it, you know. Sort of going back to the menswear dog. <laughs> I know a lot of people are wondering about this. I mean, does he actually dress up the dog or is it just Photoshop the dog's head on? No, no, he does. I, I, I was writing the article and there was like a sort of short documentary about it. And it's him and his wife. Uh, I think they live in New York city and they had other jobs, you know, but this was like a hobby. And I guess, you know, they, he said something like the clothes look better on the dog than they do on me. And yeah, they, 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 they have him sit like on a stool and then I can't forget, like maybe where, where he works, they have a photo studio and they would do this like, you know, at lunchtime or something like that. But he, he sits on the stool and he gets the shirt and the jacket and the hat to sit on the dog and they take photos. So yeah, it's not Photoshopped. That dog must be so patient. <laughs> yeah. He's extremely, I think extremely patient or well-trained, something like that. But yeah. So, so that's where it all started. It was not, it's not some sort of a really fascinating, you know, glamorous uh, origin story or anything like that. You know, it wasn't, spelunking in mines or you know my parents didn't you know 
raise me in in shrink to fit 501s that we washed at the beach or anything like that you know both of those would actually be better stories so we might yeah. want to sort of riff on that a bit and then i'll go back and edit it and sort of build up the myth yeah just just make up a story you know yeah i was born this in a so barn weird. a barn somewhere with a you know in a in a stiffle wabash play suit that you know i wore every day for the first four years of my life you know right yeah. wow oh, that you know, that, that's, this, this is going to become the legend from here on out yeah it's like it's yeah. like a paul bunyan thing but uh, i mean your story isn't uh isn't really unique in that respect because we do often see things uh wonder what they are and then go down some rabbit hole of researching it to find out what it is yep and, and yours just happened to be early century workwear and of course the aesthetic there is very interesting and compared to stuff today very sort of manly and purposeful right yeah i just yeah i I just kept you know i mean once you get into the baseline i guess for a lot of people would be salvage denim but then there were all the different looks i mean it's 2014 and this is east asia so you know there's the westerny cowboy thing there's the workwear look there are people who are into the biker look. There are people into the, you know, sort of the Amekaji mix look with like some like, you know, Goro's necklace and the sort of Native American uh, pieces. And there are people into the more quote unquote gentleman style, which is really taking off more now. So, yeah, I, I just I found myself mostly drawn to the workwear pieces. Uh, I used to dress more of an Amekaji style and then. In recent years, I kind of just focused a bit more. Because several things you just mentioned now need to be followed up. One oh, okay. is that you you are in fact in Taiwan. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, I've been here since late 2012. So this whole workwear heritage scene has been big here since well before I got here, but but you know around 2000 nine or something like that 10 uh, 8 it started to really take off something like that so by the time i got into this here it was already well established and and there was like a dozen stores or something in taipei right that's really hard to visualize but uh yeah i suppose in that respect it's kind of parallel to the japanese yeah, I mean, it took much longer here. I mean, the, the Japanese scene started, you know, th- this scene obviously started about, you know, th- the 80s, I guess, in earnest. I mean, it, it's st- if you've read the Amatora book, you know, you kind of know that the whole, you know, movement or idea started somewhere in the 60s. And in the 70s, they were figuring it out and getting into vintage. And once the 80s and 90s came around, that's when it really started to take off. So, so it took another twenty or so years here before, before it became popular. But um, right. yeah, th- there's there are a lot of stores and there's a lot of variety of of clothing and styles here as well. Now you mentioned a style or two by name. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. I mean, th- I guess. You know, within our aesthetic subculture, there are other sub subcultures. Um, so, you know, I mean, there are Western pieces. I don't know. Not many people out here dress in like a Western cowboy style. You do see it some in the U.S., you know. P- 
people with with big Tom Mix Stetson hats and, and bandanas around their necks and and you know eighteen hundreds uh, minor pants and stuff. You don't see. I mean, you'll see the individual pieces sometimes out here, but not many people who are actually into that whole you know wholesale aesthetic um uh gentleman's style i guess has been popular here lately and uh omikaji what's that all about uh you know sort of japanese english for american casual yeah ah. so so that's that sounds the, so much cooler though with a yeah. japanese name <laughs> yes <Yeah>, so <laughs> that, that's just generally everything that we're into i mean you know i guess we have a problem with naming this scene i mean some people call it the denim scene but you know that's too limiting and some people call it heritage or rugged and in japan it's always been sort of referred to as amekaji which is just american casual style clothing so that would have included anything people would have found at you know a vintage store in tokyo in the 80s you know people would just mix and match Levi's and sweatshirts and down vests and campus jackets and denim jackets and, you know, red wing boots and sneakers and, and da, 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 all down the line, you know, denim shirt, flannel shirt, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I always thought the Japanese were very good at, um, or very dedicated to sort of following a style really quite based on a guide. Right. So that they were ensured that the style was correct. Right. I mean, for the longest time, you know, I mean, it was magazines, pre, pre-internet and even into the internet age, you know, uh, it was, it's always been a magazine and a magazine editors sort of set the style there, you know, so whether it was Lightning or General Amikaji, and, and I think Biker, you know, they would follow like Daytona Bros or other kind of magazines um and then you know there was like the city boy style and and they would follow like popeye or second or those kinds of magazines so you know and you have a clutch now you know so yeah i mean the magazines have always been very influential or or not always have but but have been for a long time in setting a style and they'll even have charts and style guides like for example you know, you have a pair of red wing crepe sole boots and they'll have five or six different photos of the boots being worn with different pants. And it'll be given a grade like A, you know, C, D, F, you know. <laughs> so, for example, those boots with blue jeans is an A. Those boots with Wabash pants would maybe be like a C or a D. You know, those boots with another kind of pants would be, you know. And so it's like trying to figure out or just tell you, you know, this looks good with, with that and it doesn't, and et cetera. Yeah. yeah. It's a fa- fascinating idea how you can sort of uh, work out the optimal uh, heritage style outfit based on this. So you can sort of say, I'm A grade today. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm feeling, I mean, yesterday I went out and I was like, I was like a C minus or a D. You know, I just, it was just a slap Ooh. dash. It was just a slap. You know, it's so hot here too. It's like, you know, I had to wear were, were you made fun of? No, no, but it was just a slapdash effort, and I just couldn't even look in the mirror, you know. Oh, that's, that's yeah. tough. I, I gave myself a D. 
Right. Yeah. And, and the odd thing, of course, with these magazines is that in a sort of strange feedback loop, the magazines that document the styles of the West have sort of circled back and are now read by people in the West trying to emulate the sort of Japanese style again. Right. Yeah. So it's come full circle. So people are trying to figure out, you know, I mean, just even on, on the forums, I mean, the other day people were discussing uh, like, I don't know why I keep coming back to this, but they, they were talking about like Wabash pants and it's like, well, what shirt and what shoes should I wear with them? And I said, well, to be safe, I mean, you could always just wear a white shirt, you know, that doesn't power clash with your striped pants. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I mean, you know, or maybe light blue or something like that, you know, so people were like trying to, you know, this was a real discussion and this, people were really trying to figure this out, you know. So, so there's always someone looking for guidance out there. And that is the strange part of the forum culture where you're you're trying to find a consensus on e these issues. I mean, it's like serious research and there's right. one true answer to all this. Right, which can, of course, go too far. You know, I mean, you don't want to create like a, a, a herd mentality or, or you know, uh, you know, a real consensus where you can't deviate at all. I mean, you know, I, I was talking on Super Future about work shirts and, it it, it it turned into this huge thing about pocket placement and, and where the pockets should be on a shirt, you know, and, and it almost became like, you know, gospel or something. And I said, well, you know, it, it's not like, I mean, there's no right or wrong here, you know, it's just, you know, what I like and what I have seen and observed from vintage pieces and, you know, and, and, and sort of, you know, I can tell you, going into the forties and fifties that the pockets just kept getting higher and higher and higher. And, and now when you go into a department store or a mall store and buy like a quote unquote work shirt, I mean, the, the pockets almost at your neck, you know, but so, you know, it, it became, it started to become like, like rules, rules, style rules, or, you know, and it's like people are almost going back and, and ch checking their, shirts to see where the pocket placement is and almost throwing their shirts away and you know I said like, you know cool cool you know I'm not I'm not the pope of workwear here you know <laughs> and it's not as if in the 1920s they were sort of dressing according to uh, scorecards to make sure they had an A grade outfit before heading off for their manual labor work no no you just yeah you you kind of wore wore what they sold and I, I guess you know when everything that's sold is is uh you know, there's not much, there's not many, I mean, you can't go out and buy like ugly clothes back then, you know, cause it just didn't exist. It wouldn't even be sold to you. So of course, everyone's going to look relatively good because, you know, it's, it's not that hard. You don't have any options and all the options look relatively good. You know, now we just, we just have too much choice, you know. It's weird though, how there can be a, a sort of fashion movement within something that was really made, say, 100 years ago, right. when you talk about the pockets sort of moving around and, and people actually discussing these things as if there's a fashionable vintage style of it. Right. I mean, I was, you know, I, I was just saying that because for my aesthetic, I mean, if I'm going for pre-war and then I see the pocket, you know, almost up to the second button on the shirt, then, you know, it, 
because I guess they were talking about a brand, maybe it was free wheelers or something. And it's like, well, someone asked me like, you know, this is supposed to be a 1920s or 30s style shirt. You know, what do you think about it? And, and I guess I started by saying, you know, that the collar is very square for a 30s style shirt. That's more of like a, a tens or turn of the century thing with a very sort of square, squared off collar. And the pocket was very high, and which I said, again, that's, it's kind of more of like a 40s, 50s thing to have such a high pocket. And it, you know, it just it broke out. It turned into into this crazy monster that I created. <laughs> um, this attention to detail, though, sort of nicely brings us around to what I really wanted to talk to you about today, and mm. that is the the made in Japan concept. Right now, there is a sort of general feeling around that if something is made in Japan, it's meticulously made to absolute highest quality mm-hmm. and will command an appropriate price. Mm-hmm. Now, I know you make your products, your shirts, and so forth in mm. Japan. Right. Where are you on, on this question? Uh, well, I mean, I guess, you know, you could find a, a poorly made item, you know, made in almost any country, you know. I don't think it's not you don't necessarily absolutely in every last case just because it's made in japan it's better but there are a lot of companies there that really want to pursue perfection with this sort of thing and i think that's just part of the national character i mean people there try to be most people don't want to be a jack of all trades you know they want to master something even if it's like very niche or very obscure or to be the best collector of you know like you know 1960s portable radios you know and you'll find someone who has a thousand of them in their home you know it's like that that's a very common thing and when it comes to reproducing things yeah i would say a lot of effort goes into it because Really, I mean, ever since post, well, ever since before the war, ever since the late 1800s, they've, you know, they started studying, you know, what, let's say, you know, the U.S. and Europe, uh, you know, almost, I guess, anthropologically or something, you know, I mean, almost like, like you would study an alien race or something like that, you know, it's like, look at what they're doing and, and, you know. And that really goes back to like 1600, you know, when they closed the country off for the next 200 odd years. And so they mostly had very little contact with the outside. So when they did open up, they really wanted to, you know, certain people really wanted to just absorb everything. You know, they saw that there's this industrial revolution and and, uh, weapons and, and new ideas and government architecture, and the, you know, from Europe and the U.S. And they just wanted to soak it all up and absorb it and, and make it their own because I guess they felt like if they didn't, you know, this was in the age of empires and, you know, imperial conquest and whatnot. And so, you know, it was going to be us or them. And, you know, maybe we could have our own empire but at the very least, we don't want to be taken over. You know, the country's been forced to open up and, you know, we don't want to be left behind, basically. You know, it was like 1850 or whatever, and they were still in 
the feudal era. You know, they still might as well, might as well have been in the 15th century. So they had a lot of catching up to do. And, and again, after losing World War II, you know, I think a lot of people felt like, how did the U.S. beat us, you know? They must be doing something right that we're not doing, you know? And, and that took people down a certain sort of thought path. And, and I think also in the 50s, you have all these, you know, James Dean and Marlon Brando movies and the sort of free-spirited biker rebel guy, which is, you know, most guys there will never be able to live that lifestyle, you know? They have to wear a, a black suit and a tie and go to work and have very little free time. And, and so that's kind of like a great fantasy to have, you know, to be like this guy on a motorcycle, you know, blowing down the highway, wide open skies and a white T-shirt and jeans and engineer boots or whatever. And, and so that's kind of like, I guess that would be a very appealing and very foreign kind of thing for them, you know. So this is where where the sort of obsessive nature comes into it. Um, well, I think, have, I think they've always been kind of like that. I mean, you go back to like the 1300s and, and at that time, like, you know, China was in the, the Tang Dynasty, which is sort of like one of their, you know, peaks of civilization. And, and at that time they were, you know, they were way, way ahead of Japan and, and Japan recognized that. And they sent a lot of people to China to learn everything they could, you know the writing and the clothing and, you know, government and architecture and painting and tea, tea ceremony and, and, you know, Buddhism. And it's like, you know, let's see what we can take from there. And then, and then, you know, if we can perfect it or improve upon it or not. And, uh, and so I think the same thing happened again, you know, starting in the late 1800s and, you know, leading up until now as well. So nowadays they're they're making the sort of best best in the world cars, but also mm-hmm. the most accurate reproductions of vintage shirts and I guess uh, boots and really yeah. anything you you care to have made. Right. Yeah, I, I think they just you know they they just wanted to break down. I mean, at first they had to. I think they 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 were getting cone mills denim. Uh, Canton mills, you know, they were making Big John or whatever, like in the late 60s, and they were getting cone mills. But then, uh, I forget who, you know, I'm kind of getting rusty on that now, but they wanted to make their own denim. So they had to reverse engineer that. And, you know, it's just, I think it was just became a lot of reverse engineering at first and copying and then, and then trying to, you know, take things in new directions and see if they can improve upon anything. Because after the initial copying phase, they really took over what we now talk about as the denim industry, or at least the enthusiast denim. Yeah, I mean, which and which you know is uh, in a sense is almost no great feat because you know in the seventies, everyone Levi's and everyone was trying to just make denim as you know moving away from selvage and, and the narrow narrow looms and trying to make things as flat and as even and you know, and as uh, cost effective as possible. And, and obviously, you know, you're not going to want to reproduce that for the most part, you know, unless you're really going for like a, 
70s 80s kind of core thing but but otherwise you know i mean the holy grail is still the the 47 you know levi's 501 and, and that denim has some character and it has hairs and you know so you're going to want to try to at the very least recreate that and and so obviously they had to figure out you know how do we do that it's really quite a bizarre thing because obviously the denim industry or the people making the fabric at that time were making better and better fabric. Right. As I mean, far they as they could sell. I mean, it was, yeah. it was perfect. It was getting smoother and it was getting cheaper and everything. But then you it sort of moves to Japan and they're, they're sort of undoing this process, trying to make denim with more character and I guess you could say flaws really to make it more interesting. Yeah. I mean, I guess it's a sort of wabi-sabi thing. I mean, if you know anything about like wabi-sabi pottery, for example. The beauty of the imperfect or something like that. Yeah, basically a spirit of poverty, I think. So it's like, yeah, this thing is rough and you can see how it's handmade and and it's, it's not totally perfect. It wasn't made by a machine. It was, you know, looks more like it was made by hand and by a person. And so, you know, it, it can be more unique and individual. So, you is Japan your preferred place to make things? Uh, yeah, I mean, for a variety of reasons, yes. I mean, obviously, there's so much attention to detail, you know, when we're making a shirt or something. I mean, you know, it's not just in, like, the overall details, but, it, you know, it'll be in the kinds of buttons that, will be made there. I mean, the factories there will reproduce 1920s and 30s buttons and, you know, the kind of thread and the thread gauge that is used and the stitch count that is used and the machines that are used. And, um, you know, and and even just practically speaking, I mean, I'm not that far from from Japan as well. So, you know, it wouldn't make sense to have a, a bunch of stuff made in the U.S. and sent to me and then for me to be sending it all back to you know, people in the U.S. So, you know, I mean, there is a practical element to it as well, but but it's not just that. Do you, do you think for you as a brand, it's a selling point being able to say that it is made in Japan? Uh, I think for some people it is. Uh, some people see that as a kind of, you know, signifier of quality. But, but there's a lot of, you know, I mean, the past five, ten years there's been a, a big drive for people to buy local or to support local as well. Um, you know, so, so now some people will specifically, you know, go out of their way to buy, you know, made in USA or, or made in UK or, you know, wherever you are. Um, so, so that might not always necessarily be a selling point for everyone. You know, I mean, I put it on there just, you know, because, you know, I just, don't want to, you know, I just want to make sure that everyone knows that we're doing this in Japan and that especially because, you know, it's mostly done through John Lofgren and John Lofgren wants to try to make everything as ethically as possible in Japan as well, because, you know, country of origin isn't necessarily going to, it doesn't necessarily equate to ethically made, you know, it really doesn't matter what country. That's a, that's a good point. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there are sweatshops so, in every country. 
you know, US yeah. and U UK everywhere, you know. Um, so w when you wanted to start making things, was it hard to get a, to make contacts in Japan? Oh, yes, extremely. I mean, if you don't speak Japanese fluently, then it's going to be very difficult for anyone to respond to you there, uh, especially any sort of workshop or small factory. I mean, we call them factories. You know, you kind of imagine this, this massive operation. But, but none of these quote-unquote factories are, are particularly big, you know, where people are sewing shirts or, you know, it's not like hundreds or thousands of, of workers working at any of these places. But, uh, yeah, pretty much no one is going to respond to you unless you speak Japanese. Uh, you could, con I mean, you, people do get in touch with mills and certain mills like, you know, Kuroki or Kurabo. They, they'll respond in English and they have salespeople in Hong Kong and the U.S. and U.K., places like that, and they'll get back to you and, and that's why you do see a lot of, you know, brands in the U.S. or, or like uh, Southeast Asia or whatever. They, they get a hold of, you know, these kinds of denims. Uh, though they might also go through fabric jobbers. But, um, yeah, it's – but factory-wise and having things made there, that's going to be very difficult. You know, you might find a small brand that's willing to do collaborations and whatnot, especially these days. Uh but it wasn't that long ago where basically no one was going to get back to you. So do you actually speak fluent Japanese or did you have another yeah. way of getting it in? No, no, I just, I, uh, I remembered that, uh, John Lofgren had made some things for some people. He had made a pair of, uh, like sailcloth pants for bandana almanac, the blog, uh, blogger. And I guess he runs, the two ears brand of bandanas now. And um, he had done a few collaborations like that. He had done one for this brand in England called, uh, what's their name now? Heritage Research, which I, I guess they became TSPTR. I'm not really sure. Never asked. Um, oh. so, yeah, I think that might be them, or at least it was the same the same guy, the same model in the photos. I'm, I'm not really sure, but, but he had done some things like that. So, so I just sent John a message asking if it could be done. And I think it took like seven or eight or nine days until I heard back. And, and I, you know, I, at day three or something, I'd given up on that one. <laughs> um, you know, so yeah, that, that was, that, that was how it got started basically. And from then, you've just carried on making more and more stuff. Yeah, basically, you know, uh, I mean, I spent a lot of time before I actually, you know, sort of commit to making a sample for anything. And, you know, I, I go over the measurements over and over and over in the details and then look at the fabrics and then, you know, and then, you know, I have to weigh, weigh the idea in my mind, you know, should I really make this thing? Is anyone going to be into it? Is it, am I just making it for me or, you know, you know, I have to think about that stuff, but basically, yeah, it, it just kind of slowly uh, keep adding products to the lineup. I get the impression things are going pretty well for you now. Uh, well, 2020s, 2020s been no fun, I guess. <laughs> I mean, things kind of, they picked up a little bit more, but, 
you know, for the first four or five months of this year, you know, it was, it was pretty rough. I mean, you know, people are more worried about, you know, coronavirus than they are about uh, buying products sometimes. But, but at the same time, you know, even that, you know, you kind of do want an escape, I suppose, from, from the lockdowns and the news and the cases and, the, and this and that. And, uh, and then yeah, the impression a lot of people have actually been sitting at home being obsessed about. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. The, yeah, for sure. A lot of people at home, you know, going online and looking at stuff and, and then buying it and then not being able to go out and wear it, I suppose. But, uh, you know, eventually we will be, most people will be able to, to actually, you know, put some of this stuff to good use. Would you say there's a big difference between the way Japanese companies sort of operate in business and produce things compared to, say, in the US or UK? Uh, yeah. Uh, you mean brands or factories? Well, I suppose often they're the same thing, but often sometimes not. Uh, generally speaking, the factories are just factories. Uh, factories rarely have house brands that become successful. Okay. Um, in some cases, there have been some instances. Uh, TCB is one. Um, I want to say Capital started as a factory. Uh, but generally speaking, for clothing, not, not for like leather goods or anything like that, you know, shoes, but um, for clothing, yeah, it tends to be one or or the other, you know, I, I guess it's not that dissimilar to, you know, there are architects and then there are, you know, engineers and, and, you know, and, and contractors. Yeah. Contract. I mean, I know how to build the house, but I don't necessarily know what design and, you know, what's the brand and what's the name, you know, I mean, some people will be able to combine both of those talents and then other people will kind of, you know, stick to one or the other. So, so it, it tends to be one or the other. Um, so factories, yeah. I mean, obviously, it's uh, it, traditionally speaking, it was quite different. You couldn't just, you wouldn't necessarily just be able to contact any factory or walk up off the street and have them make clothes for you. Uh, you might need to be introduced by a, a third party, uh, possibly an agent uh, who can make an introduction. Uh, and that that's... That's more of a traditional way of doing things. Now, if, if a factory is owned by someone who's younger, maybe 30-something or early 40s, they might, you know, sort of eschew something, some of that. But um, brands as well, I guess brands are somewhat similar. You know, if you want to buy wholesale from them, you just contact them. And, and, and I guess every brand really, regardless of where they're from, they have their own kind of, you know, idiosyncrasies and ways of doing things. It was interesting that you mentioned. It was interesting that you mentioned capital because, yeah, as I see it, you have you have the sort of typically obsessive uh, companies more reproducing stuff, but then you have capital that is. I'm, I'm not sure where their inspiration comes from, but they make uh, so much stuff and so varied, and it's quite an incredible brand. <laughs> Yeah, I guess, I mean, they do generally want to go for a sort of, like, new bohemian 
sort of, you know, Japanified new Bohemian American aesthetic. Um, but there are, there are like, you know, um, sort of high fashion elements to it. And they'll have like, you know, catwalks and runway shows and with the occasional piece that, you know, it's meant to be sort of over the top. And, and, you know, I don't know if anyone will actually ever wear it, you know, that kind of fashion thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I think overall it's a sort of, uh, I wouldn't call it like, you know, sort of mountain style, but, but it is sort of like, sort of, you know, like what if flower power were to meet sort of, you know, uh, some sort of, you know, American casual, American casual flower power. I don't know, you know, something like that. <laughs> Very hard to describe at least. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I was going to ask you about something else. Um, within the sort of style that we might loosely call heritage, yeah. Um, there has, in recent times, I mean, it's, it's sort of pretty much either been made in America or in the UK or Japan, but we're now seeing companies coming out of China in the same style. Mm-hmm. And I have to admit, I'm a bit torn when it comes to sort of seeing them because I mean, either I could get the original made, say, in the US, mm-hmm. or I can get the sort of tool room replica from Japan. Right. Or these days I can get something that looks basically the same, but is much cheaper from a Chinese company. Right. Where Where are you on all this? Yeah, I uh, I mean, I've been watching what they're doing. You know, I have a I haven't bought anything from any of them, so I really can't comment on the quality. Um, but I guess, you know, I guess it just depends what, what your concern is. I mean, you know, do you want something that more or less looks the part and is much cheaper? Or do you want something that's, you know, more the real deal? Or, or is what they're making in China close to the real deal? You know, I guess it depends. I mean, for a long time, we heard we were hearing a lot about Red Cloud, and and then, at least for me, they sort of dropped off the radar. I haven't seen anything from them really for three, four years, something like that. What I remember about them was that they were very early in using hemp denim. Yes, that's true. They were pushing the sort of the also the the, the long staple Xinjiang. Uh, cotton that they were growing in the west of China. Um, but at the same time, you know, in, in recent past year or so, you know, anything being made in that region has come under fire because, you know, there's all kinds of reports of like, you know, the Uyghur Muslim camps that people are being put into and they're using forced labor there. So, you know, there's just, I mean, there's not a whole lot of transparency, I guess, when it comes to you know, some stuff like that. Um, but at the same time, you can't, you know, just go around accusing everyone of using that. I mean, who knows? We really don't know. And it is hard to know what is going on, you know, sort of behind the great firewall. Uh, just, you know, unless you're there, boots on the ground, you just really don't know. Um, but yeah, Red Cloud was, I, I would hear a lot of, I heard a lot about them before and then they dropped off and, and now you have other brands that have come out in the, in the past few years. Um, and I think in some cases they're just trying to, you know, make 
something, you know, just make something good. You know, they're not necessarily just trying to, you know, turn, make a quick buck. Uh, we, we did see brands like that, you know, some of the Taobao brands that were just, in some cases, directly copying. Uh, well, I, I, think, I think there was a Mr. Freedom piece, you know, a very distinctive piece that was, you know, directly copied mm. by, by one of the more well-known Chinese brands. And, and it went up on, on Mr. Freedom's uh, Hall of Shame, I think is the, the blog entry. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah, but but again, that was that was several years ago, and and maybe things have you know progressed a bit since then. It does become an interesting um, point though when you have an original and you have a reproduced original, and then you have someone sort of <laughs> reproducing it a second time. Yeah, and- I mean, in the past month or so, we saw the the high grade U.S. standard uh, kerfuffle with, I think it was Labor Union, which, I mean, they found an original 1920s uh, Lehigh Valley Railroad jacket, you know, made by uh, Stiffle. And, and at that time, I mean, it's something I've been researching anyway. Um, I've been going through a lot of old railroad magazines and whatnot, looking, you know, looking for stuff and reading them. And, uh, you know, at that time, in like the mid 20s stiffle was making a lot of custom prints of like railroad with their logo and, and making that into a pattern for you know chore coats and overalls and stuff for railroad workers and uh so so um, it's been i mean it's been some years now it's been four or five years since they reproduced that jacket and it was quite a distinctive piece and then recently one of the chinese brands made a repro of their repro and then you know for the original high grade u.s standard fans you know there was a lot of ire online about that and people said you know don't buy this new quote-unquote knockoff version um but again i mean it's not an original design but i guess it was an original idea maybe to reproduce it i don't know Hmm. Yeah, I, I suppose if it was a, a very rare piece that has been reproduced, so that the the timeline, so to speak, is um, is verified and yeah, yeah, oh yeah, everything's online. It's all documented as to when it came out, and it is an extremely rare piece. I've never seen another vintage example of that one. Uh, a lot of these railroad pattern pieces are just gone. Uh, I have an ad from 1925, I think, from Baltimore and Ohio Railroad Magazine, and it has the Baltimore and Ohio logo, you know, a pattern made by Stiffle into overalls and a coat. And I, I've never seen a vintage original of that one. And, and there's some other examples as well. Just all the examples so far, you know, up until now are just, they're gone, you know, or, or they're in a shed or they're in an attic somewhere you know, in the U.S., uh, in Minnesota or somewhere like that, but but no one's found them yet. What, what would go into reproducing, say, um, a jacket such as we're talking about now? I mean, are you talking about having special cloth produced? Or- uh, no, it, it's, it's, the, it's, the, it's the discharge print. I mean, the cloth itself would be, you know, it depends. I mean, mostly, these are mostly, you know, indigo, indigo dyed twills um but but the main thing is the discharge print and having to carve out or you know the actual 
print that would go on on there. Uh, it's not, you know, it's not like a screen print, but it's it's a resist die. So, you know, I guess it depends. There are two different ways of doing it. Sometimes it's bleached afterwards so that the fabric is, you know, indigo dyed and then it's bleached with a pattern. Other times, the you know, the, the ecru fabric would be, I guess, discharge, uh, you know, printed on, and then it would be indigo dyed, and then indigo would seep into uh, what was printed on, sort of like an invisible ink or something originally. Uh, but the main thing would be, you know, copying the original uh, print pattern and having that, you know, engraved uh, to be used. Mm. So yeah. whichever way you did it, it's quite a process to actually reproduce it. Yeah, I, yeah. I mean, wabash fabric tends to be kind of expensive if you're going to actually make it, you know, in earnest because it is an indigo dyed, you know, over dyed fabric. A lot of times it's selvage, and then also then you have to. There, there are startup fees and whatnot for you know, sort of laser cutting or creating the uh, the the imprint, you know, the stamps, and then everything needs to be stamped just right, and so you know, it ends up you know, like a simple, like a, a five, six ounce Wabash chambray fabric will almost, will co almost cost about as much as, you know, some regular 12 ounce denim, you know, because it's a more involved uh, process. Interesting. It sounds like well, anything I'll, made using these processes would naturally command a fairly high price. Yeah. I mean, uh, make, if I were to make a Wabash shirt, even in extremely plain work shirt it would uh it would definitely have to be 230 or 40 or 50 or 60 or 70 dollars um just because it, it would be it would be quite expensive to make each one you know um and once you factor in everything overhead and maybe some wholesale orders and everything it's it would be pretty expensive you know, I hesitate to make one because I would have to price it so high. You know, I, I don't know. But, but you know, it's, uh, for example, you look at freewheelers. I think one of their standard, like, steel driver, one of those Baba shirts is, like, 260 or 270 But, you know, it, when, it, when it costs three digits, maybe, just to make a shirt, each shirt, you know, it, it's kind of, it's what you have to do if you're going to do it, you know. Yeah. You're definitely into enthusiast uh, territory there. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it, it's not for the faint of heart when you see the price tag. But, um, you know, if you want it, you, you're going to find a way to get it eventually, I think. Yeah, I do notice that um, I'm, it might just be me, but it looks like sort of heritage style items are either going up in price now mm. or people are buying more expensive stuff. I think it's uh, both. I think it's a combination of both. Yeah, I mean, is, is some factory. Sort of... Sorry, go ahead. No, I was just wondering if this was a sort of forum uh, <laughs> thing where people are sort of hyping each other on, and uh, and the, if you're going to be cool, the sort of yardstick or something is is moving all the time. Yeah, I mean, there there is that there is that element to it. Uh, 
just practically speaking, I do know that, you know, for example, some prices of making items, for example, I don't know about the U.S., but uh, for Japan, it, it has become slightly more expensive to make certain things. Um, you know, the occasional factory will close down. And, you know, we kind of think of these things as being sort of, you know, bulletproof or whatever, but it's pretty fragile and it's, it's pretty small and you know, it's not uncommon for a factory here and there to just, you know, close down every year. Um, but some things have gone up in price to make. And, and that's, you know, obviously that's, that's had to be passed on. But, but also, I think people's brand interests or priorities have changed. I mean, if you go back to like 2012, everyone's wearing like Toyo pieces, you know, Sugarcane and Buzz Rickson and, and, and they're wearing, you know, uh, if they wanted expensive or splurge, they'd go for like the flathead or samurai and, and then they'd wear red wing boots and et cetera. A lot of that kind of thing. And, um, you know, again, if they wanted a little more expensive, they'd go for the real McCoys, but, but, you know, all those same people who were decked head to toe in real McCoys in 2012 or whatever, you know, nowadays they're decked out head to toe in freewheelers and, and all of their things, you know, they do cost a little bit more similar or, or a little bit more compared to something like, you know, real McCoys and definitely more than anything from Toyo. And, uh, but, you know, I mean, it makes sense for them because so much goes into their clothing, so much detail and custom fabrics. And technically they are still kind of a small operation, you know, they, they're not, I don't, I don't think they're making, you know, stuff by the thousands and thousands and thousands like a bigger, bigger company would. Um, so, but I think there is still room for, you know, lower priced items, I guess. And, and you still have Toyo and you have TCB and you have certain brands out there that offer a very competitive price. But overall, yeah, prices have been going up. I mean, you, you know, but, you know, again, I, I don't, I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. Maybe it's all in people's heads. I don't, you know, just because you buy the most expensive item, I don't know if that necessarily automatically makes you cooler per se, you know. I mean, the only, the only thing more important than, than, than style is poise, you know. So you could put together, you know, an all secondhand, all used outfit or, or, or lower price, you know, more, more budget conscious outfit, but you know, it, it's all about you, you know, it's all about how you present yourself. I think that's, what's more important. Yeah. It is interesting in these social media times that the sort of icons people hold up, like say, mm -hmm. Steve McQueen or whatever. Mm -hmm. I mean, none of the photos you sit looking at were ever sort of really posed or no. uh, that a stylist had put together his outfit. I mean, it was a pair of blue jeans and a white T-shirt. Yeah, or a sweatshirt uh, and, and chinos and the, the rough out, the boondocker boots or you know, the A2 flight jacket. Those were kind of like the go-tos, right? So, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the, I, do, I do even find myself, it's like I'll have a photo taken of me and then it's like, you know, I... I I wish I'm, I wish I wasn't posing for this photo. I'd rather be doing something, you know, or, or actually be caught, you know, being photographed doing something rather than just sort of standing around. 
with my hands in my pocket. It's like, okay, you know, I got dressed up and I posed for photo, like, you know, great. Now what, you know, do you do anything <laughs> that, interesting, you know? That is a superb point. Um, yeah. I, <laughs> you wish I you look cool while doing something real instead of yeah. just standing around. Yeah. I mean, I wish, you know, but, but then, you know, then I find myself doing the same thing. It's like, ah, oh, I should really have something else to do. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, really. But then again, would it be right if you had a, say, a photographer following you all day while you were doing real things and just happened no, to I get mean, a cool yeah. shot of you? Yeah, it's un it's unnatural, you know. But that's also in this day and age too, because you know, even I am old enough to remember a time when, when someone in the group of friends would get a camera and it's like, wouldn't it be a great idea if I just took photos, you know? And we're not going to share these online. We, you know, this is like the 90s or something. You know, we're, we're not going to share these photos online. They're not for social media. It's just, wouldn't it be funny if we had funny photos of us doing random stuff, you know, we just laugh at ourselves. Um, and, and we did have photos, you know, Polaroids or, or disposable cameras or whatever, you know. And, you know, those those were actually some of the best photos, I guess, because we were just sort of, you know, kind of goofing around and not taking it too seriously. And we were actually going out and about and sort of doing something, you know. Hmm. Yeah. Something authentic has been lost in that respect. Yeah, I, I might get a disposable film camera and try to recreate that. Ah, but then you're doing it with an intention, so it won't yeah, be authentic I'm, after I'm, all. <laughs> it's a repro. It's a repro of the 90s. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I get the impression that a lot of the Japanese denim companies, um, you had the Osaka 6 uh, mm -hmm. years back, who sort of started a lot of the Japanese denim thing. That yeah, Osaka 5 are, or 6. Or, yeah, I think people keep tacking them. I think there might be up to 7 or 8 now. But yeah. Okay. It's, it's evolving. Yeah. Um, but a lot of that has changed now. I mean, some of those companies have either gone bust or – right sort of evolved out of the interest zone and others have come in. Yeah, I think I, I'd seen something online somewhere in a sort of a, you know, recommended on YouTube, this business advice uh, video, and I'd watched some of them. And, and one of the points uh, he made was that, like, as a company, if you're going to expand to the next level, you can sort of base it on, on, on the three Ps. I think he said production, or uh, it was process, product, and personality. And you could try to have all of them. We should at least have one or two. And the, But the problem with basing a company on personality, let's say the founder, you, and it's all sort of based around you, is, you know, eventually one day you're just going to be old, become older and maybe you're going to become uncool or, or what happens if, you know, you just don't feel like doing it anymore. I guess the whole thing just... So could sort of easily all fall apart. Um, you were really the glue that was holding everything together. And without that sort of personal touch, you know, you just might not attract people so much anymore. It's not really about the product in that case. People are sort of buying you rather than the product. Um, so I think, you know, all these sort of things can happen. I think a lot, you know, some of the Osaka 5 brands were like that. Uh, but like, for example, Warehouse, you know, it was never about the personality. It was, it was always about the product and the process of making, you know, custom denim and, and you know, sort of a steady lineup. 
and it was never really about the founders and, and you know it was about their aesthetic but but not like you know here we're the wild and crazy guys you know look at us um but something like the flathead you know it was it was sort of always sort of in you know tied up with with kobayashi and and his whole style and aesthetic and it, you know i guess sometimes you know it's still run like a small company there's really no you know no idea of it continuing beyond the founder necessarily maybe you know or or there's really no process in place or idea of how that would happen um so yeah a lot of those brands from that era you know coming into 2018 and 19 and 20 you know i mean i guess it's hard to keep these things going forever but but some of them are just like warehouse is doing fine but you know obviously the flathead went bankrupt i guess and i don't know where they are now and and you know the real mccoys has had a lot of changes um and you know people sort of went for freewheelers instead and and uh you know i guess full count they still have their fans but but it is hard to keep this you know going in perpetuity you know just you know i'm i'm just not sure you know how long it can really go with one brand before people just want to find something else you know i do wonder um, the brands that are doing well now are they still reproducing original genes from a certain era just reproducing them to a, another level of detail say or is there a shift in what is being made um, it often strikes me that a, a five pocket pair of jeans is kind of a five pocket pair of jeans right um, everyone's making pretty much the same thing right uh, yeah I mean I think uh, there yeah there are trends within within this you know we're, we're not even we're not immune to trends um so you know i mean lately if you get on instagram you look at what all the, the coolest of the cool are wearing it seems like everybody's wearing a you know like some sort of 60s cut with a very small hem and white socks and loafers and and so there's been the you know the past few years there's been this big reintroduction of ivy style on um, you know for a lot of people you know pushing for the ivy aesthetic uh ivy league and um so so that is sort of like a trend you know within and and so brands will you know maybe a warehouse will produce more 60s items you know though they always they sort of always have but um you know but i think there's so much i mean they, they you, you kind of can always just sort of go between eras because again you go back to 2012 and there was so much 1800s minor stuff being produced and you had you know, you had brand sub brands like Duck Digger and Heller's Cafe that were just you know big time, and and you had a lot more emphasis on on like you know A two jackets and 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 ones and this sort of you know World War Two militaria style, which you know nowadays militaria for a lot of you know the cool kids has warped into this uh, sort of military plus style, which is really just sort of like you know, Nigel Caborn is like, he's finally, his sort of like sort of oversized or, you know, sort of zany military aesthetic is like finally caught on, you know, after all these years. Uh, so there are trends within trends, you know, and, and you lately, the past five, three, four years, we see, a, I see a lot more influence of streetwear 
you know, in, in the heritage scene, either direct streetwear pieces or, you know, uh, sort of like the Tokyo cool guy sort of brands, you know, like Atlast and Co. and all these types of things that actually come from streetwear. You know, I mean, that really is sort of like they come from this Shibuya streetwear scene. And they, you know, they introduce a lot of this sort of, you know, supreme, a bathing ape sort of streetwear mm. uh, approaches to heritage clo- clothing. And, and it's really more of a of an overall aesthetic. And it's, it's almost not really about the clothes. It's more about like the attitude and the sort of exclusivity and all that. Yeah. Yeah. There is some irony in um, we tend to, or at least I tend to think that oh, sort of mix vintage heritage styles into things, and uh, and then you'll be sort of outside fashion, so you'll be pretty cool. Right. And then we see that even within vintage, there is a clear fashion. I was looking in some vintage shops in Oslo this weekend, mm-hmm. and I was seeing all this eighties, nineties stuff, and I was thinking, bloody right. hell, this is not interesting at all. <laughs> but it's quite clear since all the shops have the sort of same selections right. that this is what is fashionable within the vintage world right now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's been a lot of, this just been general eighties, nineties, nostalgia in recent years, you know, since about 2014, 2014, 15, 16, there was a lot of eighties nostalgia. And in the last couple of years, there's been a lot of nineties nostalgia. If you go on Instagram, there's all kinds of, you know, 80s kids, 90s kids, dedicated, you know, uh, accounts with lots of nostalgia in general. And and we've seen the whole neon aesthetic, you know, being pushed everywhere. Um, but yeah, yeah, there has been sort of, there are looks and trends within, within trends, you know, that we see these days. Will you be sticking firmly to the early 1900s? Yeah, I, I think for the most part, I should... Uh, I mean, at first I was thinking to only do shirts, work shirts. And, and at first I did only just do work uh, shirts in general, you know, T-shirts and ladies and work shirts. And then, um, but yeah, I, I think I should try to sort of master something rather than try to be everything for everybody. You know, uh, I just... I don't, I don't really want to glom onto any sort of trends and then three, four years from now, look back and be like, Oh, what was I thinking wearing that stuff? You know, uh, <laughs> I, you know, I just, I really don't, I, I don't, I don't want to do that. You know, it might feel at the very least it could feel inauthentic, but you know, just for me personally, I kind of am defining an aesthetic for myself and I'm going to stick with that. And there's, there's a fair amount, of latitude in there and there's a lot of things I can play with and different kind of items that can be made. And if people want to take them and, and mix and match them and, you know, wear them, however, that's fine. You know, I don't, you know, I'm not like, I'm not, you know, Frank Lloyd Wright or something or Steve jobs. I'm not going to tell you, you know, how you should wear it necessarily. I mean, I have my ideas, but if people want to disregard them, you know, the rules are meant to be broken. Go ahead. Um, So, but yeah, I'll just kind of, I want to stick to this. I want to try to do this as best as possible anyway, you know. And I mean, we've seen a lot of, like you said, there are a lot of five pocket jeans out there and 
you know, up until recently, a lot of the emphasis was on like mid-century, you know, 40s and 50s. And now some brands, you know, delve into the 60s. And for a while, we had a lot of 1800 stuff. So that, you know, that's sort of ground. A lot of that has been covered. So I don't, you know, I don't really feel the need to sort of try to, to jump into that as well. In in closing, what will be next for for Right Stuff? Uh, I just opened up pre-orders for a eight-panel newsboy cap. Uh, I think you saw that in a salt and pepper ten-ounce salt and pepper with an adjustable strap. For now, it's 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 one size for now, um, and maybe later if it proves popular enough, maybe later I can offer some different sizes. Uh, but um, that's for now. And then I have to think about what else will be next. I mean, I have a lot of designs. I just, you know, sitting down that are, I've drawn out. I just have to think about where I should go with it. Maybe I should make some, some pants, some trousers with the same fabric. Um, it's actually a selvage fabric. We just couldn't fit the selvage line anywhere on the hat. It just, you know, it didn't work anywhere. Um, so we had to cut it off, but I can make some pants out of that. I think maybe that would, you know, be something different, something else. Uh, no one's really been using that exact fabric for pants, and and if they have, they've only been using the black color. But it actually comes in, in four different nice colors. So, you know, maybe time to do something that that nobody else has been doing lately. Hmm. So over time, you might actually offer a complete. 1910 1920s outfit yeah i guess i mean we could use the same fabric to make you know a hat a vest pants maybe a jacket you know it it works for all of those you know and no one needs to buy the whole suit or anything they don't want to but you know there, there could be there could be pieces that they could take here and there you know if they want it's interesting you should mention that you don't need the whole suit because i often feel that Dressing head to toe in a certain style or certain suit or certain brand can just be too much. Uh, it can, yeah. I mean, it, it, you know, I, I don't, I don't mind per se, but but for a lot of people, definitely can be too much. Yeah, it could uh, could look too costumey, you know. So I don't want any of my pieces to to feel too costumey, you know, when they're taken on their own. I mean, if you want to make a costume, that's fine, you know, but. But I don't. I don't want to like create sort of cartoonish pieces that are hard to use. You know, otherwise. That's very good. Uh, being described as costumey. I remember a few years back on one of the forums, there was this guy. He was so into post overalls, and he mm-hmm. even had the beard to go with it. And he looked mm-hmm. like some sort of Amish railroader from the early nineteen hundreds. And it was hard to take left- seriously. I think is that lefty? I think yeah. It could well have been him. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, <laughs> well, you know, yeah, I mean, Denim Bro around the, you know, 2012, 13, 14 era was, you know, it was really going into the, the hobo minor uh, chic look. And, uh, you know, some people can pull that off, like, like, you know, Bandit. I mean, he, you know, it's like, it's just, it's almost just him, you know, you couldn't see it any other way. Um but but yeah, it, you can't delve into costuming territory, and and there are whole other parallel scenes with like you know the the sort of the Goodwood revival sort of, which sort of is almost a costume, 
you know, sort of that that whole scene as well. That is, is basically a cos- cosplay day with car racing. Right. I mean, and, and, and I mean, I think a lot of those people, you know, they still dress like that every day anyway. But yeah, it is almost getting into cosplay, you know, which I guess is fine. You know, I mean, if people want to do it, it's fine. But, but yeah, I don't, I don't really want to sell cosplay pieces per se. It might be a, an immense market to get into. Well, I don't know. They might like this hat. I don't know. You know, it's sort of yeah. up their alley to an extent. <laughs> okay, Brian, we're running out of time. So um, thanks a lot for for being a guest today. It was oh, great. I really appreciated it. So um, we'll talk again soon sometime. Okay, will do. And uh, that was the end of this week's uh, episode of Gomology. I'm Nick Johannesson. If you'd like to get in touch, uh, my email is welldressedad at gmail.com. You can find my blog at welldressedad.com. And uh, I'd love it if you give us a follow on uh, your usual podcast service. And a review saying it was listenable would be excellent as well. We'll be back next week, if not before. So um, see you soon. Goodbye. Goodbye.